thanks Tony for that introduction. What Tony meant to say is, I have two girls and I'm having a third baby, unless Tony is privy to information uh, that we are not. Good morning uh, and welcome to everyone, uh, especially if you're a guest or a visitor with us here this morning. As we've heard, we're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Uh, Now, I don't know about you, what you like to do in your spare time, but one thing I always enjoy is a good crime drama on TV. Uh, And I'm not alone in that, because if you were to open the TV listings, you would see that there is an almost endless supply of programs about the police, about the law courts, and about criminals, whether it's CSI or Law and Order or Line of Duty or the Hill Street Blues, depending on how old you are, there is this endless supply of programs about crime and punishment. And that is fueled, I think, by our love of seeing the villain, of seeing the bad guy brought to justice. I was watching a program not that long ago, and the bad guy had been right under the nose of the police for months and months and months, and eventually they were unmasked and they were arrested. And I almost cheered out loud at that moment, because there is this deep desire in each of us to see the villain caught, to see the bad guy dragged before the courts and declared to be guilty and taken away to prison and for us to see justice done. But I find that I'm significantly less enthusiastic about justice being done when I'm the wrongdoer. And I don't think I'm alone in that either. None of us are really so delighted whenever we find that we're the ones who are being pulled up in front of a judge, whether that's a real judge or a parent or a spouse or a teacher. Suddenly our enthusiasm to see justice done, to see the wrongdoer caught and punished, fades away when we're the ones who it's being done to. And yet for the last two weeks and the last two chapters in Romans, we've seen Paul argue that that is exactly the position that each of us are in. And last week we left things on a a fairly bleak cliffhanger, as it were. Paul had opened his argument in verse 18 of chapter 1 when he says that the wrath of God is being revealed against all unrighteousness and all ungodliness. And then he spent the following two chapters drawing us all in under that umbrella, making clear that we were all in that category, no matter who we were, whether we were Jew or Gentile, whether we were pagan, Greek, moral, amoral, religious or irreligious, Paul's argument is that that wrath of God is being revealed against all of us. Every one of us had failed, he said, to keep any sort of a moral standard, to live up to any sort of a moral compass. And instead of living our lives towards God, in fact, we turned our backs on God and we decided to live lives that were self-centered suppressing the knowledge about God that we have, suppressing the evidence of the world around us, and instead deliberately ignoring that. We make idols for ourselves in our lives, our family, our career, our own health, whatever it is, and we set those idols up and we use our lives to worship them and we ignore God. And despite the destruction that that brings in our lives, We have chosen that and rebelled and turned against God. And Paul says, the wrath of God 
is being revealed against that ungodliness and unrighteousness. We face wrath and fury. And that is stark and bleak. And that is more or less where we ended last week. So where does Paul go next? Does he talk more about God's wrath? Does he elaborate on it? Well, let's break in to chapter 3 at verse 21 and read where Paul takes us next. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Paul's point in this section is the most wonderful news imaginable for someone left on that cliffhanger like us last week. Paul's point is to announce that despite our unrighteousness, despite our ungodliness, God declares us to be righteous. God looks at us and he says, you are righteous. And that is something called justification. That is when God declares us to be righteous. We are justified. And justified is a legal term. And it's not one that we probably use that much in day-to-day life. But we do use it from time to time. You might have two people talking and one of them saying, look, did you you hear that Janet has broken up with her boyfriend? Oh, I can't believe she's done that. She says, he was cheating on her. She was totally justified. Or perhaps, uh, do you know that uh, Tim broke David's favorite mug? Broke his favorite Star Trek mug? And David was so angry, he went out and slashed all of Tim's tires? You might say, well, That wasn't really justified, was it? There's this idea that someone has been right in what they have done. Janet was right to break up with her boyfriend. She was justified in doing it. There was a rightness to it, a righteousness to it. And the word righteousness and the word justified are the same word when Paul was writing. It can be translated either way. Uh, And so it could equally be, but now the justification of God has been manifested. And those who are justified could also have been righteousness. But that, that is the way they're translated for clarity. But God 
declares us just. He justifies us. It's like the judge looking at you at the end of the court trial and saying, not guilty. To declaration. Not just that, you know, you're guilty, but we're going to pretend you're not. Or you're guilty, but we're going to give you a really short sentence. It is the declaration that you are not guilty. To punish you would be like pulling someone off the street and locking them in prison. They'd done nothing wrong. It would be totally unfair. Paul has said previously that even with God's perfect standard in the law, no one was able to keep that standard in such a way that God could sit as the judge, look at them and say, not guilty. That's what he said. By the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But now, Paul says, apart from the law, away from it, the justification, the righteousness of God is being manifested in a new and a different way. And so clearly this idea of justification is something that we need to understand. And given what we have read in the preceding weeks, you might have some serious questions about it. And so let's just walk through Paul's words and see what he tells us about justification. Firstly, as if we needed reminding, Paul tells us about the need for justification. He says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And just as we were challenged last week as Christians, we're challenged again by those words about the scope of the problem here, the scope of the need that exists. This is a problem that exists for all of mankind, all of humanity. This message is one that everyone we know, all friends, all family, each one of us, We all need to hear this. And perhaps you've walked in this morning off the street or been dragged in by a well-meaning parent or friend and you've never seen that about yourself before. Never really thought that you've come short of the glory of God. And that idea of coming short, it isn't just that there was a target and the arrow didn't hit it. There's also the idea that we had a need of the glory of God. Each of our lives would be richer and deeper and more meaningful with the glory of God in them. And we've come short of that. We don't have it. And perhaps you do feel that emptiness in your life. In the small hours of the morning as you lie awake. On the long commute to work. Sitting at your desk for yet another day. Everything just seems gray. Is this really all that life is about? Is this really what it all means? Is this the whole thing? There's no great purpose to my life. How do I transcend the day-to-day humdrum of coming and going to work? Well, Paul says we've come short of the glory of God. And later in Romans, he's going to tell us that those he justified, he also glorified. But right now, each of us have come short of that. So the need is universal. And then we have to ask ourselves, well, this justification, who is actually doing it? Who is the one doing the justifying? One thing you'll notice is that we're absent from the stage. We don't really get a mention in here. Also note, by the way, that God didn't just come up with a new standard. It wasn't that he thought, well, look, they weren't able to keep the law. Let's lower the bar a little bit and maybe they'll get over that one. Or not that he said, well, all right, they can't keep a moral standard, but uh, 
here's the five tallest mountains in the world, and I want you to climb each of these and show, show your devotion to me. That's not what happened at all. God did everything that was needed. God offers this to us as a gift, Paul says. We're justified by his grace as a gift. He put Jesus forward as a propitiation. And we're going to think about what that word means in a minute. He offers the gift. He declares us righteous. He is the one who does everything. God the Father is the one who takes care of the whole thing. I have to say one of my great joys in life is to go and stay in a hotel. Uh, There's just something wonderful about it. Everything is taken care of for you. The bed gets made for you. Isn't that fantastic? You go to your breakfast and come back and the bed is made. The room gets tidied for you. The food gets cooked for you. They will even bring you the food to your room if you want. Everything is taken care of. You still have to contribute something. If you were to try and walk out on your last day, they might say, excuse me, Mr. Wilson, excuse me for a moment. I know we've taken care of everything for you over the last few days, but uh, there's a bill to be paid. You still have to contribute something for this experience. But that's not the case here. As the old hymn sang, Jesus paid it all. We're told here by Paul that God acted in grace, justified by his grace. Grace is the idea of getting something that you didn't deserve, something you didn't do to earn, something you had no right to expect. God justifies us out of grace. And if someone, if you've got an envelope tomorrow in the post and it had a hundred pounds in it, in a sense you've got that from grace, but you might wonder, why has this happened? What did I do to deserve this? The, the, the motivation, if you like, would be a bit unclear. But the motivation for God's grace is absolutely clear to each of us. Paul's going to tell us two chapters on, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why is God acting in grace? Why is God justifying us? It is his love for each of us. So while we were still in chapter 1, still in idolatry and living self-centered lives and turning our back on God, while we were suppressing that knowledge of him that we had and spitting, if you like, in his face, openly embracing ourselves, Christ died for us. And if you haven't fully understood the wrath of God, you will not fully appreciate the love of God because you will not understand that God loved each of us when we were at our most unlovable, our most unlovely, when we were running from him as fast as we could, Christ died for us. So God is the one who does the justifying out of his grace. We add nothing to it. We're not contributing anything. Then we have to deal with the elephant in the room. And that is this, how can God, who we are told multiple times in the Old Testament, will not acquit the guilty? He's not going to let the guilty off. How can that God declare us to be righteous? I am just about old enough to remember the O.J. Simpson trial. Some of you will remember it really well. 
And it was a really famous trial, for those of you who are younger in the States, uh, of uh, O.J. Simpson, who was an extremely well-known sports star, and he was accused of murder. And I remember, uh, as a little boy, actually, my parents watching it and watching the verdict being delivered by the jury, and they were literally out of their seats waiting to hear, uh, was he going to be declared guilty or not guilty? And O.J. Simpson was declared not guilty. But many, many people, and all the more as time have gone on, feel that he was guilty. And that this, in fact, was a total miscarriage of justice. People had been murdered, and the guy who did it got away with it. He was declared not guilty, and, and, and yet he was guilty. And perhaps you could have the impression that there's something equally shady going on here. Because if you imagine if someone you loved was murdered and society said, well, we're just going to ignore that. We're not going to really worry about that. Well, that makes a mockery of your loved one who was murdered. Society says essentially that wrong, that evil that happened didn't really matter. It wasn't really evil. We're not that bothered about it. But it is right that when the law is broken and a line is crossed and wrong is done, that there must be a punishment. There must be a punishment for it. So how do we square this circle? Well, Paul tells us that we are justified through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Propitiation is definitely a word we don't use in everyday life. And try as you might, it's hard to find a shorter or better word to replace it. So let's just try and understand it. A propitiation is an offering that is made to make up for a wrong and to turn away wrath. You need a wrong to have been done. You need someone to have been wronged by it. You need someone who did the wrong. And then you need the propitiation, the offering to try and turn away wrath. Every teenager here will have offered a propitiation to their mum at some stage in their lives. Perhaps you are planning to go out in the evening and you want your favorite red polo shirt. And so you throw it into the washing machine, you turn it on, and you come back when the cycle's done. And as you lift it out, you realize that it wasn't just the red t-shirt in the washing machine, but it was your mum's favorite white blouse. Except now it's a pink blouse. And at that very moment, your mum comes home and you realize you're facing wrath. Well, of course, you would say, I'm so sorry for this. And I will do the ironing for the next month to make up for it. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, but there's someone who was wronged. There's someone who did wrong. There was the wrong thing. And then there was the offering of a propitiation to make up for it. And God put forward the Lord Jesus as a propitiation for our sin. As if the Lord himself stood up and said, that wrath that they are all facing, that they are rightly facing, I submit myself to stand in their place. Reveal your wrath against me, Father. I will take that wrath. I will offer myself as a propitiation. And that is exactly what happened at the cross. Jesus stretched out his arms and stood 
in our place. That is why Christians talk about God's wrath being poured out at the cross. And so God put forward the Lord Jesus as a propitiation. So the evil was punished. The wrath was satisfied. And through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, God can declare us just. And then finally, what way does that come to us? Well, Paul is clear that the righteousness is delivered through faith. And faith is something that is common to everyone, to all of mankind. And it's easy to get mixed up about faith. So we're going to think about this for a minute. Faith is something that each of us exercises every day, consciously and unconsciously. We recently had the church renovated. There are some lovely lights above your head that weigh, I imagine, 200 kilos apiece. Did any of you check the bolts? Probably you didn't think about it until I mentioned it. But as you came in and you sat beneath them, at least subconsciously, you exercised faith that someone did put the bolts in properly and someone else checked it. Or perhaps you've needed an operation, some surgery at some stage in your life. And as you lie there in the anesthetic room and the mask comes down over your face, you're putting your faith in the anesthetist and in the surgeon that they know what they're doing, that they can do it, that they need to do it. So you're exercising faith. And we do that every day. Faith, as John Stott said, the value of it is not in itself, but entirely and exclusively in its object, namely Jesus Christ. Faith is the eye that looks to him, the hand that receives his gift, the mouth that drinks the living water. But faith itself is not your righteousness. Faith is nothing more or less than believing that the wrath that we face, Jesus took upon himself when he died on the cross as a propitiation, and we trust him for our standing with God. As if we're standing before God, facing that wrath and saying, I know I have no excuse. I know I have nothing that I can make as an excuse for why I shouldn't face this wrath. But I know that Jesus Christ stood here in my place some time ago and he took that wrath. And I am depending 100% on him for my salvation. And God looks at us in that moment and says, not guilty. So faith in itself is not our righteousness. And that's really important because if you engage in any way with popular culture, TV or film or music, they are more than happy to talk about faith. You've got to have faith. And usually the main character of the program at some stage will be facing some struggle or some trial. And someone, a parent, a priest, will come alongside them and say, look, you've just got to have faith. And what that faith is, is never really pinned down. It doesn't even seem that important what the faith is in. Just, you have to have the faith. And so the faith itself is the important thing. The faith itself is what saves you. Well, faith does not save you. The Lord Jesus saves you. You have faith that he's going to do it. That's like saying that the wire that connects your computer to the internet is the internet. 
It's just the thing that brings the internet to you. Or the pipe that connects your house to Maine's water is the water. It's just the channel through which it comes. And it's so important for us because as Christians, we can fall into the way of popular cultures thinking about faith. We can try and give faith a life of its own in our lives and to work up this feeling of faith. I really am believing it today. I really, really am. And when we don't have that feeling that we expect of ourselves, we worry and we doubt. But none of us get on the plane and think, I really believe it's going to fly today. I know it's heavier than the air, but I, I really believe it. We simply get on it, sit down, and put our faith in it. And so we simply say, Lord, I stand before you as a sinner. I'm convicted of my own guilt. I know that I deserve your wrath. I have no excuses that I can offer, but I am trusting in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross to have taken that wrath in my place, and I am putting all my faith in that for my salvation. So Paul says that this gift of righteousness is offered by God and received by faith. So we've walked with Paul through this passage. We've seen his argument that God graciously justifies us on the basis of the atoning death of Jesus Christ. And we receive that as a free gift by faith. And it's interesting then that Paul goes immediately to apply that truth to our lives as Christians because he says, where then is our boasting? As if he's saying, now that you understand how you faced God's wrath and how you had nothing to offer and that God, all of his own grace, has justified you, not because of anything you've done, but because of the propitiation of Jesus that God put forward, by the way, and you all have to accept it simply by faith, what are you going to boast about? All the great things you've done? How often you help out at creche? How much money you gave to Amnesty International? No. Boasting is excluded. And right here in our church today, in each of our lives, that has an impact on us and on our character. At the start of this series, we were challenged that if the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ did not live in us day to day, that we would not be shaped to be more and more like the Lord Jesus. The gospel must be a reality in our lives. And now we're starting to see how understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ affects our character. Last week we thought about three things that are affected. Uh, that that, that uh, it kills pride, that it stirs up gratitude, and that it builds assurance. How much more now, understanding what God has done for us, how much more does it do those three things? Pride. What really have we to be proud of? When we reflect on this, when we reflect on what God has done for us, it has a humbling effect. Not that we like to sit and wallow in how bad we were or how little we could do, but that simply as we stand in the light of God's love for us, the fact that God has done everything for us, that our pride starts to wither away. And pride can have a corrosive effect in a church. Very easy for someone to think, look at all that I've done for this place. 
Look at all that I've done for them. And that can become, look how little they've done. And even perhaps look how little they appreciate what I have done. Pride in ourselves is corrosive. And yet as we stand in the light of Paul's gospel, that pride withers up within us. And then gratitude. And if we read this passage and our hearts don't soar in gratitude to God for what he has done for us, well then we've missed the point or certainly I have failed you. Because though we had nothing to plead, God loved us so much that he offered his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And the gratitude soars in our heart to God from that truth. And gratitude has a pastoral work to do in each of our hearts as well. When something bad happens in our lives, there are normal responses that God is gracious to. We feel sad, we feel disappointed, and we may even feel angry. But it is possible for us then to allow a root of bitterness to form in our hearts. That anger just hardens into bitterness. And the root of bitterness at God, I am afraid, is that somewhere our expectations were not met. This shouldn't have happened like this. I deserve better than this. And so it does us good in that position to walk through these first chapters of Romans and to be reminded that when we had everything the way we wanted it, we were in a sorry state. And that despite that, God looked at us, loved us, and took the action to redeem us. So the Lord needs to stir up gratitude in each of our hearts. And finally, assurance. Last week I contended that as we work through these first eight chapters of Romans, God is going to use the words of Paul to build a rock-solid assurance of our own salvation within each of us. And this passage is the next step in that, quite possibly the most important step of that. Because people doubt that they are right with God even when they are. People, even though they are Christians, can feel like they're unsure if they're Christians or not. And there are three mistakes that what we've learned this morning challenges. There are three ways that you can end up in that state. And what we have learned this morning rebukes each of them. The first mistake is that we, somewhere buried within us, felt that we needed to contribute something at the beginning. When we became a Christian, yes, God did his bit, but we had to do our bit as well. We did something. And Paul has reassured us that actually the declaration that we are right with God is a total act of God. Nothing that we contributed at that moment that then someday we might forget to contribute. Someday we might stop contributing. So the the fear that we needed to contribute something at the beginning, well, Paul says, no, this was a total act of God. And the second mistake that we can make is that we needed to contribute something on the way through. 
perhaps you feel that that justification was sort of a, a seed investment by God. And this is why it is so important not to confuse God declaring you righteous with your sanctification, which is a separate though concurrent thing. So it's not that God sort of infused you with a little bit of righteousness and said, off you go, I've started you off, see how you make it over the next 40 years, and I'll see you at the end and see how you did. We're not going to hear the Lord ever say, you know, all those years ago I justified you, but you've made quite a mess of it, haven't you? That is not what Paul says justification is. Justification is a once-finished, final declaration that we are righteous. Right at the moment we come to faith in the Lord, we are declared righteous. And that is it. We walk with the Lord through the rest of our lives. We grow with him and we grow to be more like him. And we will fall and stumble and the Lord will pick us up. And we will mature and progress in our life. But at no point in that does that initial declaration go anywhere. So we had nothing to contribute at the start. Nothing to contribute to being justified on the way through. But the final way that you can lose your way in terms of your assurance is that you miss the character of God. Though each of us had brought ourselves under God's wrath, God, as David reminded us a few weeks ago, did not want us to have to face that wrath. Remember that. We could have ended last week. That could have been the end of Romans, chapter 3, verse 21, and finished. But that would not be God. That has never been God. The God who Psalm 145 says is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Remember that God loved us so much. He did everything. Sent his son as a propitiation so that he could justify us and restore us to a relationship with him. So as we think about justification this morning, we're challenged that it's an act of God. It's a need of everybody. Something that we have nothing to contribute to. But that as God looks at us and says, not guilty, that is the final verdict.